Today's scripture reading comes from Ephesians 2, chapter 2, verses 11 through 12. If you can please stand with me for the reading of God's inerrant and holy word. So it's Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1, sorry, verses 11 through 12. If you're using the Blue Pew Bible in front of you, it's at the bottom of page 976. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you, you who were far off, and peace to those who are near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us once more. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your holy word. And we ask now for you to send the Holy Spirit to accompany the preaching of your word that all who are, who are here, all who hear this word preached may be transformed by it, that we might be conformed more into the image of your son, Jesus. We pray all this in his name. Amen. Well, for those of you who are fairly new to our church, I think it's important for you to realize that the sermons that you've been hearing lately in the past few months are not your typical sermons at HCC. Now, they are typical in that they're all based in the Bible, uh, they're all aimed at highlighting the gospel or our gospel mission, but they're atypical in the fact that the recent sermons have been all focused on a particular topic or theme. You see, normally we just preach through books of the Bible. So last year, uh, we preached through 1 Corinthians, uh, through a good chunk of Genesis, the first part of this year, our plan is to preach through um, Nehemiah and then Galatians and probably another book later on in the fall. If you want to look in the, the pew card in front of you, there's a whole uh, list of all the, the upcoming sermons, uh, at least up until the summer. And so preaching chapter by chapter through books of the Bible is going to be the steady diet you're going to get from this pulpit. Uh, we also try to go back and forth between Old and New Testaments uh, to try to preach different genres for you so that you, when you hear God's word, uh, we want you to hear it in all of its variety, in all of its diversity. But every so often, 
It is good to zero in on a particular topic, especially when the occasion is fitting. So, for example, every year on what's recognized by many churches as Sanctity of Life Sunday, we usually preach a sermon that emphasizes the sanctity of human life in the natural span of conception to death. Sanctity of Life Sunday is typically scheduled on the Sunday closest to the anniversary of the Roe v. Wade decision that was handed down on January 22nd, 1973. So what that means is that next Sunday, we're going to observe the occasion. And Pastor Henry is already preparing a Sanctity of Life message for us. Well, the weekend before Sanctity of Life Sunday is usually the long weekend, like this weekend, that is Uh, where we observe Martin Luther King Day. And what we've done a few times in the past, and what I really hope to do more often in the future, is to observe the Sunday before uh, before MLK Day, that's today, as Ethnic Harmony Sunday. And to preach about how the gospel calls us to pursue ethnic harmony in our personal lives and in our life together as the church and and how the gospel really is that very power that makes such harmony possible. 64 years ago, in a Meet the Press interview, Martin Luther King famously pointed out that 11 a.m. Sunday morning is the most racially segregated hour in America. Now, Some are going to look at us and accuse a Chinese heritage church like ours of contributing to that problem. They're going to say six decades later we're still segregating the church? But to assume that we're all the same here, I would say is way too simplistic. Because first of all, First of all, that unfairly discounts the presence of many worshipers here who would not be racially classified as Asian. We shouldn't ignore the non-Asians in our congregation. That's not respectful. They should know that they are seen and that their presence is valued among us. But secondly, the focus on racial segregation and the use of race as a category, I would argue, is not very helpful at all. For one, it's not a biblical category. The Bible speaks of one human race. One human race that is distinguished by different ethnicities, different ethnoi. So the Greek word there is usually translated as nations in your English Bible. So, you know, think about the Great Commission, you know, going out to all nations, all ethnoi. The the point is that your ethnic identity is something that God himself ordained. He's the one who caused, caused you to be born within a particular ethnic people group. But race is a man-made classification that puts people in categories based on differences in physical traits. Traditionally, uh, the, the focus has been on skin tone, hair texture, facial features, and other physical traits. But that is just way too generalized. You see, on, on a superficial level, Chinese... Koreans, Japanese, Vietnamese, Filipinos, yeah, they they share similar physical traits. Lumping us all together and calling us Asians might be convenient for sociological purposes, but what you do is, in doing that, is you gloss over 
the rich heritage and the cultural distinctiveness of each of those people groups. Just because you have a room of people who look the same, that doesn't mean you're dealing with a homogenous group. That would just overlook all the ethnic differences between us. But, friends, having just said that, I do want to acknowledge that MLK's statement about racial segregation in the church is not insignificant today. Even though race is not a biblical category like ethnicity is, the reality is that race is still a significant factor in our lived experience, especially here in our society. We may, not, we may not live in a racist society like MLK did 60 years ago. We, we don't live in, in, the, in the exact same kind of situation. But we do live in what some would describe as a racialized society. Which means that the color of your skin still makes a difference in your lived experience. Being black, brown, or yellow is still consequential to how you are perceived and treated in a society that is predominantly and historically white. Look, we should acknowledge how far we have come as a society since the 60s. We should give God praise for that. But we still have to admit there's a ways to go. There's still progress to be made. I love how in that same interview, MLK acknowledged that his church is predominantly black. So technically, he admits it's racially segregated. But he says in that interview that while they are a segregated church, they are not a segregating church. Meaning that they gladly welcome their white brothers and sisters to worship with them, which wasn't the case the other way around. So what that means is that a church could be segregated for various factors and circumstances, but at its heart, in its spirit, it must not be segregating, actively seeking to do such things. And I find that so helpful for us. Look, church, I'll always, I'll always push back any time someone tries to suggest that a Chinese heritage church like ours is simply homogenous and just lacking in diversity. <laughs> we, I, would, I would argue that we are a, diver, a diverse church. If you're willing to broaden your definition of diversity beyond just race. But I do acknowledge that if you're using a racial category, then yes, our church is predominantly Asian. Technically, we are an Asian church just as much as MLK's church was a black church. But in the same way, we must never be a segregating church. We should be sensitive to, to any possible ways in which non-Asians might, might feel alienated or unwelcomed here. And we should be willing to lower any of those barriers. We want to make sure that no matter what you look like, no matter your skin tone, no matter any of these physical traits, that, that you feel welcomed here. You are accepted here in this church. We must never be a segregating church. And that's why, friends, I think this text this morning is so helpful for us. Because here in Ephesians 2, verses 11 to 22, it points out the problem and the solution 
for all the ungodly segregation and alienation that's experienced in society and even in churches. Now, I've broken it down into three sections for us. If you want to follow along, look inside your bulletin. You'll see an outline. First, we're going to consider the problem. And the problem is an alienated humanity. Then we're going to look at God's answer, which is to create a united new humanity. And third, we'll ask, how did he do it? How did he achieve this answer? And we'll see that the solution lies in a bloody cross. So that's where we're going this morning. Well, hopefully you have the passage open in front of you. And here in our passage, Ephesians 2.11, Paul is confronting humanity's greatest problem, which can be summed up simply in one word, alienation. In our natural state, human beings are alienated from God and we are alienated from one another. And a perfect microcosm of this universal human problem can be found in the first century hostility that existed between Jews and Gentiles. You see, to the first century Jew, Gentiles, which is just the category for non-Jews, everyone that's, that's not Jewish, Gentiles were considered unclean, not just spiritually, but also morally and socially unclean. Jews wanted no association with Gentiles lest they risk becoming unclean themselves. And so that kind of attitude made it easy to resort to using derogatory names, calling them Gentile dogs, or as you see here in our text in verse 11, calling them the uncircumcised. It's labeling someone, labeling a group of people. And you do that. You, you label them in order to, to, to treat them as the other. They're, they're not like you. They're not like your group. They are different. And not just different from you, but lesser than you. Now, on the flip side, Gentiles despise Jews for despising them, for not getting with the program and just assimilating into the larger Greco-Roman society, for, for insisting that, you know, we as Jews, we've got to be separate and, and, not, and, and, and they're not joining in with the Gentiles and all their pagan practices. So Gentiles didn't like Jews just as Jews didn't like Gentiles. This mutual hostility between Jew and Gentile was not just in spirit. Friends, it was fixed in stone. Literally fixed in stone. Look with me in verse 14. Verse 14, notice there where Paul makes reference to a dividing wall of hostility between these two groups. Now, commentators think that he most likely had in mind a particular feature that was found on the temple grounds in Jerusalem. So picture this with me, okay? So we're going to try to picture a bird's eye view. So imagine yourself as a little first century bird resting on top of Herod's temple. The second temple in Jerusalem during, during uh, 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 Paul's day. And so the first thing, if you're that little bird sitting on top of the temple, you would notice that the temple itself is situated high on a mount. And it's surrounded by three distinct courts. Now, immediately as you fly out, uh, immediately you're going to notice that, that this first court surrounding the temple is the court of priests. 
And that's only accessible to men who are of the tribe of Levi. And after you pass that first court, then around that was the court of Israel open to all other Jewish men. But then you fly over those two courts and you land on top of what's called the Gate of Nicanor. And it opens up to a third court. And this third court is the court of women, which was as far as you could get into the temple grounds if you were a Jewish woman. That's as far in as you go. Well, then if you're that little bird and you keep flying outwards, you'll reach the outer walls of the temple complex. It's a very large wall. And if you just keep on flying, you'll see a set of stairs descending down, down, down to the bottom of the temple mount. And then you're going to reach another wall. And on the far side of this short stone wall, you'll see a large area that's known as the Court of Gentiles. And as you're sitting on this short stone wall, which uh, we're told was probably about five feet tall, you'll notice signs everywhere, carved in Greek and Latin with a warning against trespassing. Archaeologists actually unearth one of these signs in 1871. If you want to see it, you, you, you can go to Istanbul in one of the museums there. If you just look online, you can find it yourself. And carved into the limestone of this little sign, it says this, quote, No foreigner, in other words, Gentile, may enter within the barrier and enclosure around the temple. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. That five-foot stone wall is most likely the dividing wall of hostility that Paul had in mind. That's why we're saying that the alienation between Jew and Gentile was fixed in stone. There was a constant, visible reminder for Gentiles as to how far off they are from God and from God's people. Paul says Uh, All of this in verse 12. He summarizes this in verse 12. Look there again. Remember, uh, he's speaking here to Gentile Christians. He says, remember that you were at that time, referring to their their, their pre-conversion days. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ. Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. And strangers to the covenants of promise. Having no hope. And without God in the world. Now this mention of Gentiles being alienated alienated from Israel. And and being strangers to the covenants of promise. Suggests that, you know, just besides this literal stone wall. There's a metaphorical wall dividing these two groups of people. And Paul identifies it as the law. Look how it says in In verses 14 to 15, that Jesus broke down, look there, in his flesh, the dividing wall of hostility, verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. So that five-foot stone wall around the temple is only representative of the real wall, the real barrier that's keeping Gentiles from Jews and Gentiles from God. It's the Mosaic law. 
particularly the ceremonial aspects of the law, the required circumcision of males, the required food restrictions, eating kosher, uh, the required cleanliness rules, all the ritual washings. If you fail to keep these laws, you are considered unclean. And any contact with unclean people makes you unclean. So you can see how the law created a significant social barrier between Jew and Gentile. So is it the law's fault? Do we blame the law of God for all of this alienation? No, friends, it's not the law's fault. The law is actually a, a very good gift from God. It, it, it is actually what showed Israel how through obedience they could live under God's blessings and how they could avoid his curses. And, and, and as they experienced his blessings, the law taught them to turn around and to be a blessing to all the families, all the nations of the earth, the Gentiles. But Israel, of course, as if you know the story, failed in this task, failed in this mission. They knew the Gentiles were alienated from God. They knew they were without hope because they are strangers to the covenants of promise. They didn't have the law of God that brings all of this blessing from God. The Jews knew that about the Gentiles, but that didn't evoke any kind of sympathy or compassion for the nations. Instead, it became a reason, instead of becoming a reason to bless the Gentiles, Israel's possession of the law became a reason to boast over the Gentiles. The law, which was meant to be a gift and blessing, sadly became a source of pride and division. Now, as we said earlier, this hostility between these two particular groups of people is, is not unique to them. It's actually representative of a much larger universal human problem. Friends, it's a sin problem. Sin is what leads us to take God's good gifts and instead of using them to bless others, we use them to build walls that divide us from others. I mean, just think about it. You know, for the Jews, it was using the law. Think about how for us, he gives us a particular ethnicity. And we come to value our unique ethnic heritage. He ordains for us to grow up with a particular nationality. And we come to appreciate our nationality. So for me, I, I'm Chinese by ethnicity, I'm American by nationality, and I'm proud of being both. I'm grateful for both of these things as good gifts from God. And he wants me to take these blessings and to use them to bless others. How can my Chinese heritage or my privilege as an American, how can it be leveraged to serve the gospel? to advance God's kingdom, to bless other people. That, that's how I should be thinking about how to use these good gifts. But then sin is there in the human heart. And sin is what leads us to distort God's gifts, where, where good things suddenly become ultimate things, 
where we try to derive an identity for ourselves, where we try to derive a sense of worth and significance out of these gifts that God gives us, whether it's our ethnicity or our nationality. And so what we do is we take something good about our ethnic or our national heritage and we elevate it. We make it an ultimate thing so that it makes us feel superior to those who are different, who are not like us. And that's how you end up with racism or nationalism. This is, this is it's sin that's leading us to these conclusions. So here's an example. So, you know, let's say I've been instilled with a strong work ethic because of my Chinese American heritage, especially with my parents being first generation Chinese immigrants who worked extremely hard to immigrate here and to make a life for themselves and eventually for their kids here in this country. But ultimately, ultimately that work ethic that I have comes from God because I mean, he's the one who ordained the family which I would grow up in. But instead of recognizing that and instead of seeing it as, as God's good gift to me so that I can use that to bless others, what if I carved out an identity for myself out of being a, a diligent, hard worker? I've got a strong work ethic. And what if I elevate that work ethic to the point that it begins to define me? where I start to think that, you know, I have all of these blessings in my life because, you know, I, I worked hard for it. Well, that therefore then leads me to start putting up walls and, and alienating myself from other ethnic groups that stereotypically don't share the same work ethic. And I start to view individuals with these broad generalizations, which gives me little sympathy for someone facing hardship if I don't think that they're working hard enough to improve their situation. I can easily ignore systemic injustices and assume that their troubles stem from just having a poor work ethic. They weren't raised right. They're not working hard enough. If Chinese Americans can improve our situation, why can't they? But do you see? You see how easy it is to just put up these dividing walls? It's not just a first century Jewish problem. We do the same thing. Whenever we take God's good gifts, God's blessings, and we use them to lift ourselves up and at the same time to put others down, which results, of course, in an alienated, segregated, divided humanity. So what's God's answer? to this universal human dilemma. That leads to our second point. We see that God's answer to the problem of an alienated humanity is to create a united new humanity. That's what Paul teaches. He says in verse 15 that God's answer is to create, verse 15, to create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. So apparently the rift between Jew and Gentile is so deep that the only way for God to make peace was to make a new creation, a new entity, a new humanity. The plan was not to turn Gentiles into Jews or Jews into Gentiles. It wasn't even to blend the two together. No, God's plan was to address the alienation, to bridge this divide, to make peace between Jew and Gentile by making the two into one new person. 
If Jews saw the category, uh, saw the world in two categories, Jew and Gentile, I guess you could say that Paul saw the world in three categories, Jew, Gentile, and now the church. The church is comprised of any Jew or Gentile who has been born again of the Spirit into a new humanity bound by a unity that runs thicker than blood. You see, we don't lose our, our blood ties with members of our own family or, or members of the larger eth ethnic people group we're a part of, but those ties have been superseded by our spiritual ties with those who share the same spirit with us, the spirit of God. Later in verses 19 and 22, Paul builds on this idea of God creating a new humanity. And he uses three metaphors to help us understand this. First, notice how he applies the metaphor of citizenship in God's kingdom. You know, Paul valued his citizenship in God's kingdom even more than he valued his own Roman citizenship, which in those days was so highly valued, so highly prized. And yet Paul counted that as nothing compared to knowing Christ, to being a Christian. So friends, this is why American Christians have to remember that Christian is our identity. That's the noun. American is the modifier. American's the adjective. Trouble comes when you mix that up. Trouble comes when you act like Christian Americans. That's to our shame. If we elevate country over Christ, we are American Christians. That Christian is your fundamental identity. Second, Paul uses the family metaphor. Christians are members of the same, he says, household of God. We're part of the same family of God. You know, friends, I, I love my parents. I cherish my parents. But they're not Christians. And since they're not in Christ, I've realized over the years that there is something profoundly missing in my relationship with them, even though I value and respect and honor them so much, yet there is something missing. And that something is what I experience with you, my spiritual family, something that I don't, I don't get with my own family members at home, with my parents or my brother but I have it with you. And that unity, that bond is real and is, is even, is, is, is cherished just as much. And the third metaphor that Paul uses here is that of the church being the new temple of God. And this is such a radical metaphor. In verse 21, he, he describes this as a building, a building that's founded on the teaching of the apostles and the prophets, joined together by Christ our cornerstone and growing up, quote, into a holy temple in the Lord. Verse 22, in him you also are being built up together into a dwelling place of God by the Spirit. I mean, think about this. In Christ, Gentiles who were restricted to that very outer court are not only now invited into the temple, but you're invited to be the temple. 
to not just get closer to God, but to have God dwelling in you. That's amazing. This is how Paul is trying to communicate the radical change that takes place within you when you become a Christian. When you're formed into a new humanity with others, with others with whom you share a profound bond of unity. A unity that's found between diverse peoples of diverse backgrounds. But you know, to be honest, I mean, let's be honest here. For many Christians, this is more of a theoretical idea rather than a felt reality. The kind of connection that we've been talking about, I mean, we, we, we believe it's true. We, we, we see it in Scripture. But it's, it's something that we actually only really experience with people who are very much like us. Look, look we, we all know from experience that we share an immediate connection with those who share our ethnicity. And when you have a shared set of cultural experiences, a shared set of cultural values, of course, that makes it so much easier to build community. And there's nothing wrong with that. But what Ephesians 2 is trying to describe is a new community, a new humanity that's based not on a shared ethnicity or culture, but on a shared faith and spirit. And that means you can experience an even deeper connection with people very different than yourself simply because you share the same faith and Holy Spirit. The Afghani refugee, the Mexican migrant worker, the African-American grandmother who lived through the Jim Crow era, the white farmer plowing wheat in the American heartland, I don't have very much in common with any of them. But if they are a fellow Christian, we share the deepest of human connections. Together we have been born again into a new humanity in Christ. And friends, that is a real bond. Brothers and sisters, this should not just be a theoretical idea for us to consent to. This profound connection, this eternal bond of the spirit with someone different than you and yet similar with you in Christ. Oh, please don't be content to just know this by theory. Make every effort to know this by lived experience in your personal life and in our life together as the church. I mean, this is why we sent off Ethnos Church last Sunday. They are intentionally pursuing a multi-ethnic ministry. They want to worship intentionally with believers of all sorts of ethnicities and nationalities. They want that profound experience of what it means to be united as a new humanity in Christ. And friends, if that is inspiring you, if you want to be a part of something like that, then I strongly urge you to consider joining Ethnos Church taking part in that vision. That's our, now our sister church. And of course, we encourage, if that's what God's calling you to do, pursue that calling. And ethnos can be that church you pursue it with. But maybe, maybe, maybe you feel called to be in a Chinese heritage church like HCC. Like me. I feel the same. I, I feel called here. 
But you know, there are still changes that we can make in our lives. Changes in how we spend our time and who we spend our time with so that this new united humanity becomes for us a felt reality. But you know, before you can identify any of the particular changes that you're probably gonna need to make in your life, you first need to be willing to actually make a change. You need to find that will, to find that motivation to actually do something different about the way you're living your life. And so let's, let's turn to our third point to find that motivation. God's answer to humanity's universal problem of alienation is to, as we said, unite us into a new humanity. And his solution to achieve this new reality is a bloody cross. Friends, that's going to be the motivation you need. Paul explains that it's the cross of Christ that breaks down the dividing wall. And it's the cross of Christ that kills the hostility and makes peace between divided peoples. Look at verse 13 again. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, speaking of Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. So Jesus is saying that, Paul is saying that Jesus broke down the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile by abolishing the law. And by that, recall that we said Paul was referring to the ceremonial aspects of the law. So if you think about it, the ceremonial laws were all there to teach one basic lesson. It was to teach us that God is holy. God is impeccably clean. And if you want to draw near to him, you need to be clean as he is clean, holy as he is holy. So the dutiful law-abiding Jew keeps all the ceremonial law and feels closer to God, feels near to God, while his unclean Gentile neighbor feels far off, separated and alienated. That's, that's what it says in verse 17. Look at verse 17. But notice here in verse 17 something radical that Paul says, and you can easily miss it if you don't read this carefully enough. Verse 17 says, Jesus came and preached peace to you who were far off, that's the Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, that's referring to the Jews. So yes, Jews, according to this verse, were nearer to God than the Gentiles. And that was, of course, made clear in the architectural layout of the temple grounds, as we saw earlier. But notice, and this is what you need to look carefully, notice how it says that it's both Jews and Gentiles who need to hear a gospel of peace, implying that both are not at peace with God. Both groups need to be reconciled to God and then to be reconciled to each other. So think about it. If you were a circumcised Jewish man in those days who perfectly kept kosher and all the cleanliness rules, well then yes, you could pass through the wall surrounding the court of Gentiles. You can go past that five foot stone wall. 
And you can climb up those steps into the temple proper, and you could enter into the temple grounds proper, and you can enter into the, the court of women. And you can pass through that in the Canor Gate, and you can enter into the court of Israel. But unless you're a priest, that's as far as you go. You have to stop right there. Now, unless you're of, now if you are a Levite, then great, you can go a little further into the court of priests. But unless you're of the house of Aaron, you can't actually enter into the temple itself. And unless you are the high priest that year, you can't go behind the veil. The veil of the Holy of Holies where the glory of God resides. If you trespassed, you'd be struck down dead. You'd be killed. The point here is that even for the law-abiding Jew, there's still a dividing wall of hostility separating him from the Lord. He can obey the law and still not be at peace with God. And the same would apply to us. That means even if you do the right things, you keep the right rules, you are a good person. You obey God's word, but there's still going to be a wall between you and the Lord. Sure, yeah, yeah, you are closer to the Lord than the sex abuser, than to the hardened criminal or the international terrorist. Sure, they're further off. They're not at peace with God, but neither are you. There's hostility in the air, and not just between fellow man, but between man and God. It's because of our sinfulness and selfishness. It's because of our pride and partiality. We are the ones who should be killed. God should kill us for our hostility towards him and our hostility towards other people or people groups. But in God's mercy, instead he killed the hostility. Look at verse 16. His plan, verse 16, was to reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. On the cross, Jesus bore our hostility on his shoulders and he received God's hostility in our place. That means he took our punishment. He died our death. And reconciled us to God the Father. Verse 18. Through him, through Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Friends, this is the gospel. And until you receive it, until you believe it, you're just going to keep putting up walls in your life. You'll keep dividing the world into people who are like you. And they're great. And those people over there who are not like you. And you'll do it because it makes you feel good about yourself. It gives you a sense of identity, a sense of worth. Look, your ethnicity is a very important part of who you are. And it's not wrong to be proud of your culture. But if your ethnicity or your culture is at the core of your identity, meaning if, if, if if at the very core you see yourself as Chinese, or Korean, or white, 
or black or brown or whatever it is, that's a problem because that's going to lead to pride. That's going to lead to a sense of superiority. You're going to start to elevate yourself or elevate your kind over others. The whole point of this passage is that there's only one core identity that won't lead you down that ugly path, that won't tempt you to lift yourself up or or to your people up in order to put others down. And that, my friends, that one core identity is that of a Christian. Because Christian simply means wretched sinner, separated from God, deserving only of hostility, but by the grace of God, saved through faith in a bloody cross, forgiven, accepted, loved by a heavenly Father. That's what it means to be a Christian. If being a Christian is at the core of your identity, then your ethnicity is just your ethnicity. Your culture is just a culture. It's no longer defining you. It's no longer central to who you are. And so you don't feel a need to defend it all the time. You don't feel a need, an urge to elevate it over others. Because you're a Christian. That's what really matters. And now, your ethnicity, your culture, can just be enjoyed as what it was always meant to be. God's good gift to you, meant to bless you, so that you could turn around and bless others. Let me pray for us. Father, I, I just, I thank you for your good gospel that reminds us what is the priority? What is the most important thing about us, about those who are in Christ? It's Christ. It's the person of Jesus Christ. And so I pray that Christ and the unity that we share in him may not just be something that we know is true, that we agree theologically, but may we experience it right now with the relationships with the people in this room and then with those in our lives, in our campuses, in our, cla- in, our, in, our, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, with those who may be very different than us. But if they share the same faith and the same spirit, may we, through a felt experience, Experience what it means to be one united new humanity in Christ. It's his name we pray.